0: It's time to talk about all things mental health. This is Get Mental with Cecile Aarons. As a seasoned, licensed therapist, Cecile is the owner of Transcend Therapy and is here to inform, guide, and connect you on the big and small everyday happenings that affect our mental and emotional well-being. Cecile is passionate about making a lasting and positive impact on people, connecting them to their own wisdom and strength, while having a little fun along the way. Get ready to challenge the power of your human spirit. It's time to get mental. And now here's your host, Cecile Aarons.
1: All the things they say Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Get Mental. Thank you for being with us here today. And for those of you new to the show, my name is Cecile Ahrens. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and owner of Transcend Therapy, which is an outpatient mental health private practice here in San Diego, where we provide individual, couples, and family counseling. Our website is TranscendTherapyCA.com, TranscendTherapyCA.com. If you want to check that out, you will get lots of information about who we are, what we do, and how to get in touch with us. So this show is about all things mental health, where we destigmatize and deconstruct everyday experiences that impact our emotional and mental well-being. And our hope is to inform, inspire, and uplift you. So today's topic is a very emotionally charged subject for all of us. And I think it's important not just to focus on the feelings, but also the facts of the matter. And the subject I'm going to be diving into today is in is the uh, subject of the recent mass shootings in our country. Very, very horrific and unfortunate and a heavy subject, I know, but I promise to... Uh, give you a balanced view on it uh, the best way that I can. So we're going to talk about statistics, motivating factors, perpetrator characteristics, the psychological and emotional impact of these shootings on us, how we can help you at Transcend Therapy, some of the red flags to look out for in yourself and in others. And then in the end, I'm also going to offer some ideas on how we could address this horrific phenomenon that is plaguing our country today. I think, you know, part of the problem is when we talk about mass shootings, we get caught up in this chicken or egg thinking around it, right? Uh, is it mental health? Is it gun reform? Is it this? Is it that? The, the, the truth is the path to violence is often a very complex one. And the, the path to being a mass murderer is even more complicated than we would like to think for all the things we don't seem to have the answer to, here's what we do know. And the information I'm about to give you is from a recent research study just published last month, July 2019, by the U.S. Secret Service National Threat Assessment Center, and it is funded by the Department of Homeland Security. And what they did is analyze all the mass public shootings committed in 2017 and 2018. So unfortunately, these exclude the most recent ones this year. And they found really some interesting themes and patterns. So the first thing that they found is the age of the perpetrator ranged from 15, right? 15 years old to 64. That's incredible that a 15-year-old would commit mass murder. 15 to 64, with an average age of 37, 93% of the attackers were male, and most of these attacks involved the use of firearms. So I think it's really important to think about that or to take all of that into consideration. 25% had a history of chemical dependency or substance abuse. About 50% had a history of criminal charges beyond minor traffic violations. And as far as the perpetrator's mental health status, about 67% of the attackers experienced mental health symptoms prior to this, sorry, prior to the attacks, 67% of the attackers. And depression and psychotic symptoms were the most prominent. And by psychotic symptoms, we're talking about paranoia, hallucination, and delusional thinking. They were the most common psychotic symptoms. Nearly half of the attackers in this study were diagnosed with a mental illness prior to their attacks. The other interesting finding here is that um, the perpetrators typically had their own motives and rationalizations for the murder that they were about to commit. And in this study, grievance appeared to be the main motivating factor. I was on the Andrea K. show uh, last Friday, and I talked about this briefly. Grievance is where the perpetrator believes that they're being slighted or alienated or wronged in some way. It doesn't mean that it's true, but it's real to them, this belief. And so they feel justified in retaliating in this way due to their cognitive distortion, or their delusions, for some of them, of being wronged. So the other thing that the study found is this idea of fixation. This is really interesting, I think. So fixation is an obsessive preoccupation, either with a person, an activity, or a belief, or ideology. And in this study, 41% of the attackers had unknown fixation either with an ex-wife or a girlfriend or some issues in the workplace, perceived injustices, like I said before, social political ideologies, and you know what, even video games. So even like the fixation on certain types of video games, they showed to have some kind of link or increases the risk somehow of uh, becoming Uh, violent. And, you know, I'm going to talk about that at a different show, because I don't, I don't think we have the time to really get into our culture of violence and the impact of video games. But I thought that was interesting. And the perpetrators also had pre-selected targets in mind. So it's premeditated mass murder, really. But in nearly two thirds of the attacks, harm was directed at persons indiscriminately, meaning they really didn't care who they shot. So they, they, they came in there with a target, but you know, uh, as they're going into it, it, they just really didn't care who they were hurting. So very, very disturbing information, I know. The other thing too, that they found was that there were significant stressors within five years before the shooting for nearly all of the attackers and at least um, one significant stressor within one year of the attack for almost all of the attackers. It's really, I think uh, I'm not surprised being a mental health therapist that, that that's the case, but for, for most of the public, I think that's interesting information. So the, the stressors included family or romantic relationships, such as death of a loved one, divorce, broken engagement, some type of physical or emotional abuse. Another stressor was work or school related, being denied a promotion, losing a job, being forced to withdraw from school, and then contact with law enforcement that did not result in an arrest or a charge was also um, one of the, the themes that they found either for domestic violence or inappropriately touching women, engaging in some kind of violent act, and then personal issues such as homelessness and uh, losing a competition. The other thing too, that uh, they found was for half of the attackers financial instability was experienced for at least half of them. And I think this was the case for Steven Paddock, the, the perpetrator of the mass shooting in Las Vegas. At least that's what I heard anyway. I don't know if that was uh, uh, confirmed. So again, I think, you know, it's important to think about that because like I said, the path to violence is a complex one. There's not a single causative factor. And I know that's not what we want to hear because it's not easy to explain or solve, but it's important for us to really understand how complicated this issue is. So another thing that's interesting to me is that these attacks ended within five minutes, five minutes only, but that's a long time when you have an armed perpetrator. A lot of damage can be done. Also, the perpetrators had a history of eliciting some kind of concern. And I think that's not news to you guys, right? Because a lot of them, as we know, made some kind of post on social media, especially before the attack. And um, in my previous circle, which is the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, and there's a really... Great association in San Diego for all of these professionals dealing with threat assessments. We believe that uh, violence, especially violence of this nature, can be prevented once we have enough information and once we know what to do with that information, and I think that's one of the big problems is we have the information, we're seeing it in public, but there's not an efficient system um, and we haven't agreed on how to best, address that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some ideas that I have uh, as to how to uh, maybe move the conversation forward. But uh, going back to what I'm saying, you know, the history of eliciting concern, some of the behaviors that uh, were found in this study that were a pattern are social media posts with alarming content, escalating anger or aggressive behavior, changes in behavior and appearance, expressions of wanting to hurt other people or themselves, writing about violence or weapons, inappropriate behavior toward females, stalking and harassing, increased depression, and the list goes on and on and on. So again, I think it's important to note that there are signs and symptoms before the actual event. And if you notice any of this, even if you're not sure what it is, it's best to report that to somebody. If you're a student, report it to your teacher or to your parents. If you are an adult, tell somebody if it's happening at work, talk to HR, talk to your boss. If you're a stranger and you're seeing somebody act erratically, call law enforcement, call 911. I have certainly done that myself. If I notice suspicious behavior, Um, it's better safe than sorry. So just to summarize the findings, because I know I I threw in a lot of information there. The attackers from the year 2017 and 2018, because this is what the study was about, was frequently motivated by grievances. Okay. All of them had recently experienced at least one significant stressor, and most had experienced financial instability. Most of the attackers had made threatening or concerning communications and a similar number, which is two-thirds, uh, sorry, three-quarters, had elicited concern from others. And they had histories of criminal charges, mental health, sy- sy- mental health symptoms, and substance abuse or use. So most of them had mental health sy- symptoms. So you can't say that that's not a factor for some people who are, um, you know, in the camp of don't, don't blame it on mental health. Um, You're destigmatizing mental or you're stigmatizing people with mental health and so forth. I'm going to talk a little bit about that too. And most use firearms and most perpetrators were male. So what do we do with all of this information, right? We have the research it's been funded by the U S government and it actually is really good information. So what are we doing about that? Before I can answer that and offer some guidance, I want to talk first about how all of these shootings may impact you and your mental health. This is a really, I feel, a missing point in, in all of the conversations that we see in the media about this. It's normal and, un- and understandable to have a mix of emotions. So you might feel some sadness, some shock, some anger, helplessness every time a shooting occurs for some people, there might be a numbing effect or a a denial system takes over because it's too much to really think about and too much to acknowledge, right? Because if you did, you would have to feel certain things about it. You would have to confront um, all your feelings about that. The thing I want you guys to know is this is a traumatic event, not just for the people directly impacted, But for first responders, that's nurses, uh, law enforcement officers, therapists on the ground, and for sometimes for you, the person who's removed from the situation, but you're constantly hearing and watching it. There could be some trauma effect similar to the feelings we experience during grief or a loss. I believe we experience a cycle of shock, denial, sadness, anger, hopelessness, helplessness, fear, and anxiety. And that's a lot to be carrying around. And our kids are feeling this way too. It just breaks my heart. There is not one single social issue that really, really gets me to the core than this. I care about a lot of issues, but this is number one, Um, especially when children are dying in a school environment. It is so barbaric it's unbelievable that that's happening to the most powerful nation on the planet. And, you know, we seemingly can't do anything about it. I really refuse to believe that. So the other thing that happens when we're angry, and I talked about this on the Andrea K. show too, is what I call or we call the displacing of your anger. It's really normal or common to displace your anger, when you feel so helpless and terrified and upset about something. And we do that in an attempt to make sense of an event. And you're seeing a lot of this in the media right now where people are blaming President Trump. But even though this problem has been around for so long, way before President Trump became president, but for some reason, these shootings are his fault. Uh, Republicans may be blaming Democrats, uh, Democrats blaming, the NRA. So there's a lot of different ways that this displacement of anger uh, manifests. So making someone responsible and accountable for something is very different from displacing your anger onto them. Usually it's not based on facts when you're doing that. And it gives you a false sense of comfort and power and false sense of the truth. So that is a big problem in our media today. And that's why I created this show, because I want to change some of these conversations and educate people more on the psychological and emotional process that happens because those anchors are impacted by this too, emotionally. It's hard to stay objective when you're emotionally impacted by an emotionally charged event, especially something so traumatic. So in my experience, here's what I see as a psychological impact in my office and and the people around me. We can get, uh, aside from those feelings that I just talked about, We can get desensitized to violence, which I think is a very, very scary thing. You don't wanna get desensitized to violence. You don't want to think that shootings are normal because it's not in a lot of other countries. It really isn't. And I'm gonna give you some interesting facts and stats on that uh, in a few minutes. So desensitization to violence is what can happen, right? Unhealthy normalization of violence, like I I just was talking about. It becomes normal, when really it shouldn't be. Um, Apathy or indifference, which is, uh, in my opinion, a psychological response to feeling overwhelmed or helpless or stressed. It's like just a frozen response. You just don't do anything. You don't, you're not moved by it because you're not really maybe feeling and thinking about it. Um, You just feel so helpless, it kind of immobilizes you. And sometimes that's what you need to do in order to function, right? That's actually the body and the brain survival mechanism so that you can compartmentalize this information and be able to move through your day. Um, And in some cases, what I see is that these things can propel action in some people, and inspire advocacy and change. And you see that everywhere now, where people are lobbying for change and people are mobilizing, depending on, you know, where there are, where where they sit on the debate on this issue. Um, for me, doing the show, talking about it today is my form of taking action, educating the public, offering support. The other thing that happens too is um, people will overgeneralize Okay, what that means is you start to kind of have all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking about certain people or certain groups or guns in general or gun owners in general. Or, you know, um, for some people, white males in general. I had a client come in, was really upset and talking about male privilege and white supremacy, and so that became her narrative, right? That people are, uh, she was being triggered, I actually have two clients being triggered by white men. So it's really interesting how we end up internalizing these events, but you you we cannot underestimate the impact that it's having on our psyche. And so it's really important to recognize the signs and the symptoms in yourself or in others and your children. And if you live in San Diego and you're experiencing any of these symptoms, please give us a call 619 619- 823-1382 again, 619-823-1382 or visit our website at transcendtherapyca.com or also just email us transcendtherapy at gmail.com and we'll be happy to help you and support you through this. So if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Get Mental and this is Cecile Aarons and we are talking about mass shootings in America impact and implications, signs, symptoms, and solutions. So another interesting statistic here, everybody, this is what I was talking about uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, the fact that we are a developed nation and we have this huge gun violence problem. Um, And this one is from PBS.org, where they talked about the 2016 findings. Um, And these findings were by the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics. Lots of words there. Anyway, in this study, six countries, only six countries were found to be responsible for half of the world's gun-related deaths. Think about that. Six countries are responsible for half of the world's gun-related deaths. That's pretty incredible. And guess where we were? We were number two. Okay, Brazil topped this list at 43,200 deaths. This was 2016. And then the U.S. came at a second, um, second place at 37,200 gun-related deaths. And guess what? This is even more shocking to me. The third country was Mexico, Mexico. We had more gun-related deaths than Mexico. How, do, how is that possible? I mean I had no idea. So this is why I'm, I'm I'm saying it's really important to look at the facts ladies and gentlemen and not just get focused on the feelings about this. Okay? Mexico in 2016 granted, you know, it's not 2019 numbers but still um, these are still factual information I'm giving you. They only had not only it's still a lot, 15,400 gun related deaths. Almost We had almost twice as that, and we are the United States of America, okay? The other countries uh, were Venezuela, Colombia, and Guatemala. So we had Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, and Guatemala, and the United States. Think about that. We were the only developed nation on this list. I don't know about you people, but that really bothers me. I'm deeply disturbed by that. Um, I think this is why I believe we need to address not just the mental health crisis in our country, which is real and it's getting worse, but also the accessibility of guns in our country. And maybe, you know, that's not the, <laughs> the information listeners want to hear. But I think, is it the chicken or the egg? I think it's both. And we're not going to be able to solve this if we're too busy displacing our anger and inappropriately blaming the other person or party. The problem is both. Um, and we need to address it from all angles. We can protect the right to bear arms and the right to life and safety. I truly believe that I'm not a politician. I don't know how to operationalize that, but I also don't think it's rocket science. So please, if you're listening and you have some power or influence, really take this information to heart. So now let's turn over our attention back to the mental health aspect, okay? What are some of the signs or symptoms that may indicate that someone is a risk for harming themselves or another person. So this is if you're noticing it in someone you know, or like I said before, a stranger on the street. So one of the the things that perpetua- these perpetrators have in common is having very little empathy, not showing a whole lot of remorse and, you know, I've never met these perpetrators, but I would highly suspect that they have some kind of antisocial personality trait. They may not meet the full uh, diagnostic criteria for that, but I think they show a lot of those uh, those traits. Um, so fantasizing about violence is another red flag. Overtly expressing wanting to hurt self or others, having a history of aggression or violence, having access to guns or weapons, unusual preoccupation with weapons, violence, murders, shootings, history of mental health problems, right? Where they're demonstrating um, instability and just whatever concerning behaviors you're seeing. They seem disconnected or disengaged or presents like as a loner. That's also a very kind of common pattern. Um, Psychotic symptoms like the study found uh, unusual presentation, and grievance. Having some kind of grievance, no matter how small it is, that is the seed that can flourish into hate and rage and, and wanting to murder people. Grievance towards others, such as a peer, school staff, authority figures, teachers, uh, what have you, ideology, a certain group of people. So again, you know, um, tell somebody, It's not your job to assess whether the threat is viable or not, but we need to start communicating. And I know in the case of the Parkland shooter, they did try. They did call FBI. And this is part of the breakdown is we don't know what to do with the information. And I think law enforcement needs to be empowered more and given the authority to intervene a lot earlier in the process. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes I also created a video last year before I started this show, and you can check it out if you want more information on this. And it's specifically on the subject of school shootings, and you can find it on our website, TranscendTherapyCA.com, or YouTube under Transcend Therapy. And you'll see some videos there, but this one I'm talking about is on school shootings, signs, symptoms, and solutions, I think is the title. And just a little uh, qualifier for me, I used to do a lot of threat assessments um, a few years ago, and I was actively part of the ATAP community, which is Assessment of Threat Assess- sorry Association of Threat Assessment Professionals here in San Diego, and they're still very, very active and just going strong. And uh, that's why I feel like I can talk about these issues too. Uh, The other thing, too, is with with these cluster of symptoms, we don't just look at one symptom. We'll look at the entire context and the history and all the data that we have in order to assess the level of threat. So just because, you know, a person is showing one or two of these red flags, it doesn't mean they're going to hurt people. I just want to clarify that. okay? but for 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 you, the listener, if you're noticing anything suspicious, report, consult. And if you're a student and you're really worried about your safety, tell your parents and you don't have to go to school. That's, I have a child and if my child is that worried about it and I have reason to be concerned and the the teachers or the school's not doing anything about it, I'm not going to put my child at risk. It is not worth it. Um, So anyway, that's some of the information that I think might be helpful. Um, If you or someone you know is experiencing these symptoms, please call us. We can help support you or this person. We can help assess the situation further and hopefully help you in coping and managing the challenges you're facing in life and hopefully really reduce, if not eliminate, your risk for developing um, problematic and aggressive and violent behaviors. You deserve help. Okay? 619 823 1382. Transcend therapy 619 823 1382. And like I often say on this show, you are not alone. We all have problems. We all need support and violence and death is never, never the answer. So I just want to focus a little bit on the trauma effect of these horrific mass shootings. I think, like I said, these shootings can be very traumatic and it's important to Remember that these are traumatic events, not only to those who are directly impacted, but to all of us watching and hearing about it all day long, especially, you know, the constant news stream about it and the disturbing images can become the norm. All of that affects our brain and our bodies. Okay. It it affects our brain and our bodies. You are what you, you're not just what you eat. That's one of my motto on the show. You're what, you, what you're listening to, what you're consuming in the media is also becomes, uh, has, a, has an effect on you, has a cellular effect on you, especially if it's really engaging and emotionally charged. That's why self-care is very important and being mindful of what you're viewing, how much of it you're viewing and consuming and taking breaks from it. Being more mindful about the amount of exposure you're allowing yourself and your children to have around it. Did you know that there's a process called vicarious traumatization? Probably not. I don't even know why I asked that. (laughs) But there is a process called vicarious traumatization. Basically, what that is, think of it as like similar to the concept of secondhand smoke. It's basically secondhand trauma. That's the most simple way to explain that. The frequent exposure to the details of the shootings um, creates stress, a stress response in our bodies and sometimes even symptoms of PTSD. And the symptoms of this secondhand trauma I'm talking about can include irritability, depressive thoughts, negative view of yourself, of other people, of the world at large. I see this all the time in my office, just people being really um, negative about the people around them, feeling like they really can't trust uh, strangers or smile at people at the grocery store because they don't know, you know, what they're thinking or doing just, you know, kind of like paranoia ish uh, and just very guarded. I have two clients in mind right now that have that uh, problem. Um, Displacing of the anger that I see that a lot. Isolating because you're not in the mood to mingle, right? Or just not in the mood to start a relationship with a stranger because of all those negative thoughts that you have about them and the world. Fatigue can also be a symptom. Apathy, uh, just a sense of indifference, feeling burnt out from hearing about it, feeling helpless, overwhelmed. If this is you, like I said before, there is real support that's available to you and your loved ones. And it would be really helpful to flesh this out with a professional, especially if you have people in your social circle who might be really emotional about this too. They may not be the healthiest people to talk to about this. Okay. So if you're in San Diego and you think we're a good fit, call us 619-823-1382. So now I want to talk about what we can do about this, right? Given all the information I just talked about, I now want to share some of the ideas I have and how to move the conversation forward. And again, I'm just, you know, a therapist in San Diego, a citizen, you know, one citizen of this country. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I think uh, I have something to contribute, and here's what I think. So, first of all, um, we need to, I believe, have some mental health legal reform, specifically to broaden the reporting and intervention criteria. Because right now, what the only way, or legally, the only... um, reason that we can report and break someone's confidentiality is if they are actively, that's the key word here, actively a danger to themselves or others, right? Not just thinking about it, but if they have a plan and intention, that's the only time we really can uh, report them without getting in trouble. Well, I think that's a huge problem because we shouldn't wait until someone is actively trying to, hurt themselves or other people. Um, we should probably lower that bar so people can get help a lot earlier in the process and we can catch it early, intervene early, and hopefully prevent some of the these violent acts. Um, you know, it's really such a dilemma, it, it, just in my office. And I'm, I know I speak for millions of therapists. You know, you have someone in your office saying, I thought about killing myself yesterday did you have a plan yes And at that point they were really high risk but for whatever reason they were able to survive that moment and then 12 hours later they, they're in your office and they're saying I don't have that thought right now but that was just 12 hours ago. And so why can't we try to get them some help at that point? And I know I know this is complicated and there's going to be implications right to that person, to the people uh, who are experiencing these symptoms. And yes, you know, they may not be happy about that, but the idea I'm talking about here is not waiting until you're further down that road of really about to hurt somebody or yourself before we can legally intervene? Because if the mental health reporting and intervention criteria were to be changed, I believe then this could allow law enforcement to intervene earlier, right? Because it goes hand in hand. When we report, when we call 911, it's usually law enforcement and the, with the PERT team, which is the psychiatric emergency response team that comes to evaluate. And if we lowered the bar, there would be, uh, more chances that we could catch them earlier on in that in that process of wanting to hurt themselves or other people, we could justify bringing them in to the hospital or a higher level of care for immediate evaluation, and then the PERT team would be relieved of this unfair task of evaluating someone's risk on the spot. I mean that's a lot of pressure, and I've heard from PERT team workers, you know, in the past of. Yeah, they can have a huge dilemma sometimes walking away from from a, a person because they're not actively, again, that's the word, suicidal or homicidal. But in their heart of hearts, they're really uneasy about leaving that person in their home because there were a lot of red flags. But legally, their hands are tied. So hospital admission criteria should also be changed so people can be admitted for observation. Again, these are all my opinions. I think it's appropriate to admit someone if they show high-risk type of behaviors within the last 24 to 48 hours. And these are um, just my initial thoughts. We need a task force to clearly define what mental health red flags are and what high-risk behaviors are. So uh, I'm not saying, you know, admit them just for uh, having low-risk behaviors I'm talking about. Uh, the cluster of symptoms that rise to the level of concern. And you really need a skilled clinician uh, to be able to assess that. But most importantly, we need clear guidelines and authority to do that. The other thing that I think should happen is gun access reform. And I'd be the first to say that I feel like this is outside of my scope of expertise because that's, that's not my, uh, Uh, That's not in my wheelhouse. I'm not that familiar with what's happening in this area of gun reform. I know there's the red flag law that they're trying to uh, enforce. But some kind of reform, I believe, is needed. I truly believe there has to be a mutually satisfying compromise between both sides, right? I think we can come up with a solution that still honors our Second Amendment rights. And listen, guys, I come from a family of gun owners, like lots of guns and military uh, family members. So I I enjoy target shooting, but I also love people. And I think um, we should protect the right to bear arms and the right to life and safety. And I think we can. We just have to change the way we're talking about this. Okay. The other thing too that I think might be a good idea to have is an effective nationwide system of tracking suspicious gun shopping activity. And where these systems are cross-reporting to each other in real time, right? If Joe Blow is in California, buying two guns, and then goes to Las Vegas, buys three more guns, goes to Texas, buys all this ammunition. If you're seeing this suspicion, suspicious pattern, we need to be able to talk to each other and know that in real time and have a system in place to intervene and red flag that person. Because that is suspicious. Why are they doing that? So equally, if not most important, we need to strengthen and support our families in a real way. I talked about this too at the Andrea Kay Show. I believe our family units are disintegrating in this country. And this is the basic unit of our society, of every society, is the family. It all starts here. And like I said um, on the show, this, this is where the seeds get planted. This is where the foundation gets laid for who we become. It's where the seeds of love or pain get planted first. It takes a village to raise children, and families need support. And by family, I not just I don't just mean immediate family. It's also extended families because sometimes people's immediate families are very dysfunctional and abusive. So if that's the case, you know, maybe there's an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent that becomes a protective factor. I know for me, that was the case. And I couldn't have been who I am today if I didn't have those supports, right? And when we're born into this world, we're innocent and we're pure love and joy. And then we get nurtured into who we are today based on all of these experiences. But if you have a loving, safe family system, then I believe that's one of the most preventive ways to approach this problem. I really don't know how we're going to do that. We also need to address our culture of violence. Okay. That's the movies, the shows, the video games, etc. But back to what I was talking about, as far as the family system goes, if you have this culture of violence going on around you, because there's only so much we can control, right? That's the reality. If you have a family system that is showering you with love and safety and guiding you in the right direction and instilling moral values in you, that's a protective factor against, you know, being at risk for wanting to hurt or harm other people, right? So the family unit is, um, think of it as like this cocoon that can really protect individuals our children from falling prey to these Um, inhumane activities. We need to reinstall moral values back into our families and our communities, our schools, our institutions. And this may include some form of spirituality. And Andrea Kay was alluding to this uh, last Friday. And whatever that might mean to you, whatever spirituality might mean to you, whatever that might look like. But I believe we need to have that um, all over our, our Im- most important institutions. As long as it promotes, I don't care what it is. I don't care what, what religion it is, as long as it truly promotes love and kindness, because that's really what, uh, spirituality and religion is really about. Um, so if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to get mental, this is Cecile Ahrens, your host and owner of transcend therapy. And if you want to find out more about our practice, you can go to transcendtherapyca.com. I also want to let you guys know that we have a podcast now that's available on Spotify, Anchor, and iTunes under Get Mental, and you can listen to this episode and all our previous episodes. I, I also have a, a web, uh, sorry, a video on YouTube on this topic, school shootings. If you want to learn more about it. And um, you can access that on YouTube under Transcend Therapy or our website, transcendtherapyca.com. So now what I want to talk about um, is um, a couple of clients who have served as inspiration, because this is our inspiration corner where I talk about success stories. So the first uh, client is an elderly gentleman who watched the news frequently and started complaining about depressed mood. He was more anxious. He had increased negative thoughts about people in the world. He was irritab- irritable, And I did see a change in him over time. And so what we did was work on self-care and being more mindful of what he was listening to and what he was watching. And we also discussed ways to reconnect with what is good in the world. We talked about some simple activities he can do to remind himself of what's good in the world. It's really a form of mindfulness practice. He would go for these walks. And I had suggested to him, you know, when you go for, for on these walks, slow down a little bit and really use your senses. What are you seeing? Notice the flower, notice the, you know, person on the, the street. Smile at them, notice the sun, right? What are you hearing? Depending on where you're walking, maybe he's hearing children laughing or um, animals or birds chirping, right? What are you feeling? The, 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 The sensation of the sun on your skin. And as he did this practice, he did report that he started to feel better and he started to experience more pleasure because he was more present, right? Present in himself and in the world around him. The truth of the matter is these events are really rare, but they are horrific. And because of the constant reporting of it, it feels like it's happening all the time, but they are rare. And there is good in the world. And there is a lot of love and kindness and happiness and laughter in the world. But what you focus on is what get bi- is what tends to get bigger so if you sometimes you have to intentionally seek out what's good in the world and seek out these experiences to be reminded um that you have access to it and that you can experience these positive feelings the other uh story i want to share is from a retired marine veteran um he is he is such a survivor, resilient gentleman. He had a lot of trauma prior to joining the military. His mom committed suicide. He was a victim of severe abuse and neglect. And um, then he went to combat and, of course, you know, saw a lot of horrific things there. His best friend, who was also uh, a Marine veteran, committed suicide, So he had to deal with that. So he was dealing with a lot of PTSD and he wasn't my client then yet. And so he finally came to a place where he was feeling okay enough to start to experience life again. So he and his girlfriend decided to go to the country uh, concert in Las Vegas. And as soon as he walked in there, he said, this feels like a soft target because this is because of his training and so forth. And he had this funny feeling right? But he, he, you know, he talked himself out of it. He was able to, you know, kind of put in perspective that maybe this was his PTSD and so forth. But the tragic thing was he was right, right? I mean, he ended up in a war zone all over again. He was saving people, saving bodies. I mean, I don't want to give you the graphics, but that's when he came to my office is because he was, he decompensated and got activated in the worst way Uh, just trauma after trauma after trauma. And this really, really screwed him up emotionally, mentally. And, you know, you can't blame him, right? It was just a very, very unfortunate circumstance. So he showed up every week, sometimes more than once a week. He, you know, reluctantly would try the things we would talk about and uh, he started to get better, I'm just giving you the edited version, of course. This was a lot of work on his part and our part together as a team. He started to feel better. He started to think about his future in a more hopeful way. He started to go back to school. Um, He got more stable. But then another loss happened, uh, a breakup this time. And this really sent him for a tailspin once again. And he is uh, currently homeless, but we're still working together. He's starting to climb out, uh, out of that dark hole. Um, but you know, there's still a lot of work ahead, but he's not giving up you guys. That is the inspiration here is that he's being, um, thrown these very, uh, painful circumstances. He's being thrown into these very painful circumstances over and over and over again. And he, is showing so much resilience, even on days where he doesn't want to get up and do it. He he still chooses to do it. Um, and because of his history of trauma, unfortunately for him, he has a lot of risk factors. And that's why these things hit him a lot harder than the average person without a whole lot of trauma would. But I mean, God, the resilience, the strength, the commitment, and you know, I want you guys to know that it's never too late. You're never too old. You're never too sick and you are not alone. You are not alone. If you are really in a dark uh, place in your life, take it one day at a time and keep reaching out, keep showing up to your treatment, even if you don't feel like it. Those are usually actually the times when you need it most. So if you are in San Diego and you think we are a good fit, 619-823-1382, Transcend Therapy, 619-823-1382, or visit us at TranscendTherapyCA.com or email us TranscendTherapy at gmail.com. And the other thing too, I want to say before we end is the the inspirational people that I think don't get enough credit in these uh, events are the survivors, the families of survivors and victims, and the first responders. They are our inspiration. This is why I do what I do, and we need to honor them and um, recognize that it's a lot of unnecessary trauma that they're being um, asked to live with. We need to come together as a country. We need to attack this problem on all sides. And, um, you know, We need to keep having faith that we can solve this problem because I I do believe that we can. We just have to have enough will to do it and uh, be able to set our differences aside. So you're listening to Get Mental. Thank you for being with us this hour. This is Cecile Aarons, owner of Transcend Therapy. I really appreciate you uh, joining me today and um, be safe be part of the solution. And like I always say in this show, be gentle and be well. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Get Mental with Cecile Aarons. To learn more about Cecile, become a sponsor or guest on Get Mental. Or if you have any questions about mental health, visit TranscendTherapyCA.com. That's TranscendTherapyCA.com. Join us next week at this same time for more talk on all things mental health on Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens.